to a very important question if you're going to understand this message this morning. If you're going to understand Mark 2, 1 through 12, you must consider the answer to this question. What is your greatest need in life? What is your greatest and most dire and most important and most critical need in life? Is it financial relief? Is it physical healing? Is it, is it a reconciled re- relationship with someone? Is it a relationship period with someone? What is your greatest, greatest, most urgent need in the life that God has given you? I want to show us this morning what God is showing us this morning in his passage, that our ultimate need in life is the forgiveness of our sins. That must be the answer that you give to the question, what is your greatest need in life? And let me tell you, this is not a Sunday morning answer. This is the answer to that question 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, 90 years of life. You and I are most urgent in the need to have our sins forgiven. This is the answer to the question for every human being that has ever been created or will be created in all of time. Forgiveness. For sins. And so this morning, as we work through this passage, I've got to ask you to prepare yourself to worship in this sermon because you are called to worship as I preach, as I am called to worship as I preach. I'm going to call you to embrace that truth and to understand that truth and to live that truth out even in the next few minutes as I preach this passage. Your biggest need is to have your sins forgiven, not to be healed. Not to be financially established, not to have relationships, but to be forgiven for your sins. And to teach us this, God has given us Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, where there is this paralytic man that is brought to Jesus for healing. And Jesus is going to teach us something, and we're going to learn something from five distinct people that are outlined in this passage. We're going to learn something from crowds. We're going to learn something from a paralytic. We're going to learn something from some friends, four friends. We're going to learn something from Jesus, and we're going to learn something from some scribes. And so these five people are going to be the outline for what we do this morning with this passage. Let's look first at at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So right out of the gate, Jesus has come home. Home is no longer Nazareth. Remember, they ran him out of Nazareth when he preached the word. Tried to push him off a cliff, but he disappeared amongst them and and was not killed. He sets up a home base in Capernaum, probably in Peter and Andrew's home. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and now they're calling this, Mark is calling this Jesus' home, and there are throngs of people gathered about this house. There is a standing room only crowd. There's even overflow seating outside of this house. And this sounds great at first. We love crowds following our Jesus, don't we? Crowds ought to be in the presence of Jesus. This makes sense, but this is not 
a sure sign of success, the crowd. Crowds don't always mean success in Christianity and in ministry. In fact, the crowds that follow Jesus, as we see throughout all the gospel accounts, the crowds that follow Jesus never follow Him and never come to Him in repentance or worship. They come to Him in a, in a weird kind of idolatry. They idolize Him because He does amazing things. But it's the wrong kind of idolatry, if you will. We need to idolize God. We shall have no other idols before Him. He is the one and only idol. But they idolize Him in a, in a humanistic way, in a fallen way. The crowds that we see in the Gospels are either following and chasing Jesus selfishly, or they are around Him in hostility. But we never, ever see people coming to Jesus in giant crowds with repentance. In fact, when Jesus starts calling people to repent, they plug their ears with their fingers and they storm away saying, this is too difficult to hear who can stand it. May that not be true of us this morning. The crowds actually in the Gospels hinder Jesus in his ministry and hinder people from getting close to Jesus. And what we learn from these crowds is that enthusiasm... And even proximity to Jesus does not equate to faith in Christ. That's what we learned from the crowds right out of the gate. How did this crowd build? Well, last week we didn't get a chance to look at verses 43 through 45. If you remember, Jesus heals this leper. And then it says in 43, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing for what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And then it says in verse 45, But this man that was cleansed of his leprosy, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus commands this man, don't tell anybody what I've done. And that's a very confusing statement. This is what many refer to as Jesus's messianic secret. Over and over again in the Gospels, we hear Jesus say, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. It's a messianic secret that he's trying to keep. And to understand that rightly, I'm going to devote tonight's service to that. That's what we're going to do at 6.15 tonight. We're just going to look at why does Jesus say, be silent about what I've done. There's a very good reason. So we'll not go there now. We'll be there tonight. So Jesus actually strived to unveil his full identity gradually. And I think that he actually was trying to minimize the crowd so that his ministry would not be hindered. And a bunch of other reasons that we'll get into tonight. And look at what Jesus was doing at the end of verse 2. He was preaching the word to them. Remember last week I said Jesus came to preach, not to heal. And that his healings are actually parables. They're actually many sermons. And Jesus in this moment is preaching the word. He's probably saying what he said in, in Mark 1.15. He's probably saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's probably what's coming out of his mouth because that is the word that he came to proclaim. And so here we have this crowded house with these people that are selfishly wanting to get a glimpse and selfishly wanting to listen in and hoping to see Jesus do something amazing. And what is he doing? He's preaching the word. 
Now we move to the second character in this passage, and it's the paralyzed man. And, and as many of Jesus' teachings and parables and many of the stories in the gospel are structured this way, this passage is really not about this man. <laughs> He's like a visual aid. We know so little about him. We know this. We know that he is helpless. We know that he is desperate. We know that he is utterly dependent upon others. That's what we know about this man. We know that he cannot get to Jesus, and if he doesn't get to Jesus, he is in a hopeless condition that is beyond despairing to look at. And this crowd that is gathered is so insensitive to the needs of others, namely this paralytic, that they don't have any mindset for him. They don't have any desire to get him, who needs Jesus most, into his presence. Presence. And I I just want to make a quick aside here. There are many churches in today that look like this. Throngs of people gathered around Jesus, and when a needy person comes in their midst, they don't get out of the way and usher this person to Christ. They're too busy, inwardly focused, too busy worrying about what we have going here. That we're not outwardly looking towards others that need to be brought close. And we need to sometimes get out of the way so that some could be brought to the feet of our Christ. May that not be who we absolutely become. We have messages like this that caution us. That we don't crowd people out from access to the one that we have gathered to worship. So we know this man is paralyzed. He's dependent. He's needy. He's desperate. That's all we know about him at this point. But we also know this, we know that he has four faithful friends. This is the third group of people that Christ teaches us about. Look in verse 3 with me and just listen to these words. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof Above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. We know a lot about four men now. We hear much about these guys. And we need to understand because I think this is one of two main points in this passage that God has for us. The the focus is drawn very vividly onto these four. Faithful friends of this paralyzed men, man. And I want, I want to note to you the love that these four men apparently had for their paralyzed friend. The greatest commandment Jesus gives us is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second he says is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We absolutely see that playing out in these four friends of this paralytic man. So they have great and tremendous love for this friend. But also do you see, look in here now, do you see the faith that they have in Jesus Christ? That is the center of what Jesus is going to deal with in this passage. They have faith in Christ and we know that they have faith in Christ because they have works that demonstrate this faith. They don't have a mere mental assent that Jesus is 
is good, and boy, if our guy could only get to him. No, they have such faith that they go to great lengths to demonstrate that faith by getting this man in his presence. This is James chapter 2, 14 through 17, if I've ever seen it before. Listen to this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. These four friends have faith that their man needs to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And these four friends have the works to substantiate that faith because they go to great lengths to get their man to the feet of their Christ. There's two aspects of their faith that I want to look at. The, The first one is their faith was absolutely determined and certain and bold and ambitious. It was determined. They would not be thwarted from taking their man to their Christ. I, I love what Jesus says in Luke sixteen sixteen. Make a note of this next to this tearing up of the roof passage in your Bible. You've got to have this connection there. Luke sixteen sixteen. Jesus says, The law... And the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. That's what Jesus was doing, right? Preaching the word. And listen to this. And everyone forces his way into it. Let me read it again. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. Everyone forces their way into the kingdom of God. So I've got four friends in my Bible that have a a dear friend that's a paralytic. And they go to extreme lengths because they are absolutely determined to get him in the presence of Jesus Christ. So they cart him around on a bed, a stretcher. They're trying to get him to this crowded house where Christ has been reported to be at home yet again. And they can't get to Jesus. They can't penetrate the crowds to get inside because it's standing room only outside for all the gawkers and all the, all the idolists, idolatrous people that are worshiping Jesus really in the wrong way, selfishly. And so they don't say, well, there's no hope. We're not going to be able to pull this one off. Maybe we'll find him at another location at another time. Maybe we could figure out where he's going next and we could go get on the front lines of the line there and get the first ticket. No, there's, there's none of that. They say, our friend needs Jesus Christ and he needs Christ right now. So we've got to get creative. And let me tell you, authentic faith in Jesus Christ is creative in a godly way. It is not discouraged It is not postponed. It is acted upon immediately. And creativity is at a premium when you absolutely believe that you need to be in the presence of Christ. And so, these four men 
do what Jesus says in Luke 16, 16. They force his way into the kingdom of God. And here's how they do it. They climb upstairs to the house that Jesus is in. And I want you to picture a first century house. Most of all of them had roofs. They had a staircase on the outside of the building to get up there. There's no spiral staircase inside. It's an exterior staircase to get up there. The roof of this building is made with, with good, strong, stout, maybe cedar beams across. And then they've got cross sticks to build more structure. Then they lay down some thatch, some grass. Okay, And then they, then they cake on some mud. And they take maybe some terracotta tile and they lay that tile down on that mud. And when it all dries, they've got a roof. When you read this passage in Greek, it says literally they dug through the roof. We don't dig through roofs, do we? We saw through roofs. They dug through the roof because there's mud and grass and tile. These men climbed stairs with their friend on a stretcher. And then they started digging. Can you imagine the scene from the inside? <laughs> the, the owner of this house, I think it's Peter and Andrew, they're hearing this thud on the roof. And at some point, dust starts to drop. And at some point, sunlight pierces through. And, and there's dust and sunlight mixed. And finally, when the dust clears, they might have seen four heads looking down in there. I imagine this kind of stopped the teaching for a moment. And I imagine the whole room is pausing going, what is this? all about. Well, what this is all about is worship. Because there's four men in a paraplegic that are worshiping Christ to the extent that they go to great lengths to get him into his presence. And so here comes this now bed, this stretcher being lowered by perhaps four ropes, one on each corner. And this body is coming down and I imagine that it sits right in front of Christ. These men calculated where in the roof to cut. Creativity. Drivenness. And so they get their man to his destination. The most important place this man could ever be delivered. To the feet of Jesus Christ. It's his only hope. The second thing I want you to see is that their faith was self-denying. These four men denied their self-interests. To the extreme. They, they carted their man around on a stretcher. They climbed stairs. They break through. It's probably going to cost them personally to repair this roof. But they don't care. They want their man before their Christ. They did Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But consider the interest of others more important than yourselves. These men lived that out to the letter. And so we've learned much from these men. They are the focus of verses 3 and 4 and really the focus of the first half of this passage. Let's look now at the fourth person in this text. And now we're going to start making some application. Let's look at Jesus. In, in verse 5 we read this. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, you're healed. No. No. Son, get up and walk. No. Son, move your legs and... No. He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
I'm going to say to you that I've discovered in a new way in preparing to preach this this morning, this last week, verse 5 of chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible to me now. Four men lower a friend to Jesus. Jesus sees four men's faith and probably the fifth man's faith as well. And he says, your sins are forgiven. This is not what one would, would expect from Jesus at this moment. At first glance, Jesus' statement to the man seems almost cruel. Almost cruel. A, a crippled man being forgiven as if he deserved his paralytic state because of some sin he committed. Well, maybe he did. Maybe he did. Do you, do you understand that we have physical and emotional ailments because of sin? Uh, I, I, I'll just give you one quick example. A person can be utterly depressed. Utterly depressed. And that's not their problem. They're depressed because they're living in unconfessed sin. It's Psalm 32 where God's heavy hand is pressing upon someone. And that causes that someone to be depressed. We don't need to treat depression. We need to treat lack of repentance. So there are scenarios where our ailments are due to the fact that we are living against God. Don't take that too lightly. That might be the case in this. But we do know that this man needs sins forgiven, and his paralytic status is because of the fall that happened at least in Genesis chapter 3, where all of humanity and all of creation is marred. So his paralytic status is due to sin. It just might be the original sin and not something specific he's committed. So Jesus is addressing, really and truly, this man's most urgent need. This man does not need to walk. This man needs to be forgiven for his sins. He was brought to Jesus for physical healing, and Jesus is going to deal with something bigger. He's going to deal with his spiritual healing. And I want you to look at what brought this forgiveness of sins about. It was faith. Verse 5, Jesus saw their faith. And then he said, son, your sins are forgiven. The driver of the forgiveness is their faith. Not mere works. It was a work to get him lowered. But the work demonstrated the faith from James, right? And so we see here that the faith of other people was instrumental in the salvation of a man. The faith of other people was instrumental in the salvation of a man. Now, be careful. The faith of the paralytic is involved in well. Jesus does not save people who don't believe because other people do believe. You must believe personally in Jesus Christ in order to be forgiven for your sins. And I believe that in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, that is five people's faith. I think we've got a paraplegic that's on a stretcher that's saying, Guys, could you get me to Jesus? I can't get there. Could you take me to him? And we've got four men saying, You're right, that's where you need to be. We'll get you there. I think we've got five men's faith that are bringing about one man's 
salvation. And here's how we're going to apply this passage this morning. We're going to camp out here for just a moment. I I, I want to make a statement to you, and I want you to write this one down. It takes a church to live in a fallen world. It takes a church to live in a fallen world. These four men are a miniature church. These five men are a miniature church. We've got a wounded, broken brother that needs others to usher him in to the presence of Christ because he is suffering from the effects of living in a fallen world. Do we... In this church, let's get very specific, Rocky Point Baptist Church. Do we have this kind of faith in Jesus Christ? And do we have this kind of love for one another? That's why we're here this morning. That's why God inspired Mark to record this. We need to take an inventory and ask, do we have this kind of faith in Christ? Love God. And do we have this kind of love for neighbor? We're to do both of those. We're to put both of those together and worship. As a husband, if you're here this morning as a husband, do you have a wife that you need to usher into the presence of Jesus Christ so that she can be forgiven for her sins? Wife, do you have a husband that you need to get some help to lower through the roof to the feet of Jesus Christ so that Jesus can heal him of his sins? Employer, you're a godly businessman. You have employees that you have hired that report to you. Do you have an employee in your company that you need to usher into the presence of Jesus Christ so that he can be healed and forgiven of his sinfulness against an almighty God? You are called to put him on a stretcher, tie ropes to the corners and cut holes through roofs to get him here. Before Christ. Here might be here on a Sunday morning. Or here might be in front of this on a Wednesday afternoon in the office. I don't know where here is. Do you have a neighbor that you live next door to or down the street from. That is railing at God. Living an unrepentant life because he doesn't know God. Does, does he need to be ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ by you? Let's get closer to home. We have moments in our lives as Christians, born-again Christians, where we struggle to honor Christ with our words and with our thoughts and with our actions. Is there one amongst us that we need to carry before Christ so that they can, in faith, repent and Jesus can say to them, your sins are forgiven? It takes a church To live in a fallen world. This man could not have gotten in the presence of Jesus Christ. Without four faithful brothers taking him to him. One of our youth has had a. It's been told to me a startling week. Because last Sunday they were challenged. 
with the question, who have you invited to Camp 220 next week? Well, no one. Well, why not? (laughs) And this one got ambitious this week and went and asked what, what I've heard is nine people to go to Camp 220. Nine unchurched youth. They don't go to some other church that don't know Jesus Christ. Would you come to camp with me? This youth is saying, I want to carry you. I want to cut a hole through a roof and drop you into Waxahachie. And I want to take you in the very presence of Jesus Christ so that maybe he'll say to you, your sins are forgiven. It's one of our youth. What about us? Last I heard, we have maybe four. I know that list starts drawing down as the day gets closer. But would God grant one be carried by our youth group to the feet of Jesus at Camp 220 next week. And may God say to that one, your sins are forgiven, my son, my daughter. It takes a church to live in a fallen world. May God grant that one of these youth would say, I got carried to Jesus in 2015 in the summer. It takes a church, church. Who can we, outside of us or within us, go and carry into the presence of this Christ that we worship? Let's look at the fifth group of people. And boy, it takes a bad turn here. The fifth group is the scribes, and I call them the the true paralytics. (laughs) They are the true paralytics in this story. It's tragic. They're paralyzed and they don't even know it. Verse 5, or I'm sorry, verse 6 says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the story here just takes this radical U-turn, goes in a different direction. Our glance is taken away from a paralytic and four friends. And now we're focusing on these learned, educated, high and mighty scribes. And there arises a battle in the very midst of all this that's happening between Christ and the scribes. And the battle is over the true identity of Jesus Christ. That's what they're fighting over. The true identity of Jesus Christ. They accuse him of blaspheming. And if you look in Leviticus, you'll see that the the penalty for blaspheming God is death by stones. That's what they're saying about Jesus Christ. Their theology is exactly right. Look at their words. Their words there in verse 7. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is exactly right. I love their theology. They rightly revere God. But boy, they apply this theology in a horrific way. Because they have God with us in their very presence. And they say God's blaspheming God. They do not accept Jesus Christ for who he is. And this is to be expected because you know what John, the apostle John said in John chapter one, he says, 
He, being Jesus Christ, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. And then it says this. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people are these scribes. His own people are these scribes. And they will not receive him for who he is. He's a blasphemer. And what they don't realize is in their paralytic state, they're saying God is blaspheming God. They don't even get it. Instead of criticizing Jesus, these scribes should have been clearing a path. These scribes should have been clearing a path for this paralytic to get to him. They should have been ushering this man into the presence of Christ, but they can't because they're critical. Instead of worshiping and serving, they just sat there. They're disapproving of what's coming out of his mouth and what they're seeing. And I want you to know that there are people in churches like this to this day. Learned people. Got their Bibles all marked up. Bible markers hanging out everywhere. They know this thing backwards and forwards. But don't you dare bring some sinner in here and let him be proclaimed forgiven for his sins. Only God can do that. And we are a church and that doesn't happen here. <laughs> that literally is being said in churches around our country. Verse 8. And immediately Jesus, wow, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he addresses them. Now this is God in the flesh, right? He is God in that he pronounced forgiveness for sins of this paralytic. And he is God in that he perceives in his spirit without hearing an utterance what these scribes are questioning. And here's what he says. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to this paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Last week I said, Jesus' healings are sermons. The purpose that he heals is to preach they're parables. And here Jesus does it for us. He says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I will do this miracle. Son, get up, pick your bed, and go home. The miracle supports the preaching and the teaching and the Word of Christ. So we're not given this parable to see that Jesus is a superman that can heal paralytics. We're given this passage of Scripture to see that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, who has authority on earth to do all kinds of things, but the most important thing that He could ever do is forgive sins. And so that we know He is capable of forgiving sins, He's also capable to heal people of the consequences of sins. These scribes need the very... Thing that Jesus just proclaimed and did. These scribes need their sins forgiven. These scribes need to be told, My sons, your sins are forgiven, but they will never hear those words from Christ 
apart from faith in Him. You need to hear those words. I need to hear those words. My son, your sins are forgiven. We will only hear them when in faith we force our way into his presence. Their learning, their status, probably their robes, their hats, all of that make them less aware that they're paralyzed. The shell looks good, but inside they are paralyzed. And it's a dangerous place to be because when you're that well put together, it's really hard for you to understand that you're a paralytic who needs to be forgiven. I, I want you to know that pastors... And elders of churches are ever close to this kind of condition. I'll stand before you. Yes, I've gone to seminary. Yes, I'm educated to some degree. And yes, I read this a lot. And I could walk around here just like these scribes if I don't watch it. And forget that I too was a paralytic and needed to be forgiven of my sins. You pray for me. You pray for Josh. You pray for Colton and Tony and the rest of the guys. You pray for Art. We are ever close to becoming just like these scribes. And when pastors and elders come like these scribes, it is ugly. And that church is tarnished and raked over the coals. You must pray for us that we never go scribal. We never become like these men. That would be a great way to pray for us. Father, protect them from becoming scribes. Not a one of us wouldn't look you in the eye and say, please pray that for me every day of the week. Teachers in Sunday school classes with our kids, with our youth, nursery workers, church members at large, any one of us can fall into this state of heart. And it takes a church to live in a fallen world. And sometimes in that church, we need four friends to take us in our paralyzed state to Christ so that we can get right with him again. So Jesus preaches a sermon. He is the son of man. He has authority to forgive sins and to demonstrate that authority. He heals a paralytic and tells him to take up his bed and to go home. In verse 12, we read this. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. But they're going to trickle off. They were wowed in the moment. Fireworks went off, but they're going to forget. Probably tomorrow. Can you imagine this man and what he's thinking? To, to be lowered, to be in the presence, and to, to not hear, son, you're healed, get up and walk, but to, son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine in that moment that man's response? I'm thankful that he didn't respond in anger. How dare you say I've sinned? Some have said that to Jesus. He gets up from the ground with something far more important than his bed. He gets up off the ground with a clean, pure heart. 
And he can now live as a repentant, faithful follower of Christ without regret. Being proven innocent in the matter for which he said. He needs that more than anything. You and I do not need to be healed from physical issues. We do, but not first. What we need to be healed from is our sin against a holy God. Can you imagine how horrible it would have been for Jesus to just heal the guy's physical ailments and not heal his heart? That guy would have walked again, maybe another 40, 50 years. Who knows how old he was? But he's paralyzed spiritually forever. But Jesus dealt with the forever while at the same time dealing with the here and now. Without forgiveness of sins, he would have been spiritually paralyzed for all of eternity. And Jesus, in his goodness, says, I'm not going to deal with that first. I'm going to deal with your soul first. And I say to you this morning that this Jesus looks at you with the same attitude. He looks at you and says, paralytic. Last week he looked at you and he said, leper. Thank you for letting me call us lepers last week and not getting angry. But we are, spiritually speaking. This week we're paralytics. Thank you for not getting upset with me, with the Lord. And what we need to hear from Him is not get up and walk. We need to hear from Him, your sins are forgiven. Have you heard those words from Christ? I began this message by asking you, the question, what is the most important thing that was needed in your life? And I, I trust now that you embrace with me the fact that you need your sins forgiven more than anything else. More than anything else. You do need other things. I'm not minimizing those. But I'm prioritizing what you need. So let me conclude now by asking this question. What is the greatest thing God has ever done? What is the greatest, greatest, greatest feat, accomplishment that God has ever done or performed in the history of history? And maybe even in your life. He created out of nothing in six days. He he fashioned a man and he breathed life into his nostrils and he lived. And he fashioned out of that man a woman from a rib. Those are pretty amazing feats. Uh, Hebrews 1 says that he holds all things together by the word of his power. If God just relaxed his word for one moment, if Jesus relaxed for one moment his word, everything falls apart into a kajillion pieces. Those aren't the greatest things. Those are pretty good. Those are not the greatest things God has ever done. The, The greatest thing God has ever done is forgiven sins. It's amazing that he's forgiven sins. The God who made you and me, he made us in his own image. And he granted us the Garden of Eden. And he granted us dominion over everything on the earth. And we used that image and we used that dominion to wrong him, to defy him. To shake our fist at him. To say, I know better. I'm going to do this. And yet, that God 
of all the things He could have done to us for our sins. Just think of what He could have done to us for our sins. Of all the things He could have done, He says, I'm going to go die for them. I told them that if they disobey me, they will surely die. Genesis 2, 16 or 17, 18. If you disobey me, you will surely die. They disobeyed. I'm going to go die for them. Death is going to have to happen. But I am going to go and I'm going to be a substitute for them. So that I can say to them when they believe in my substitution for them... So that I can say to them, your sins are forgiven. And I can call them sons and daughters. That's amazing. That is the most amazing thing God has ever done. And here's how he did it. He sent his one of a kind son, Jesus Christ. God the son stepped down into time. Came on the earth. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's baptized by John in the Jordan. God says to him, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He passed every test by quoting the word of God back. He then comes and says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, I am here. I'm going to do something amazing for you. I'm going to bring about forgiveness by being a substitute for you in death, even though I don't deserve it. And so he marches his way around the Galilean countryside. And at some point, we'll see it in about Mark chapter 9, he turns his face towards Jerusalem and he heads to a hill called Calvary. And an appointment that he has with God the Father on a cross where he's going to say, it is finished I've paid the price for sin. It is finished. And all that believe in me will never perish but have eternal life. That's the most amazing thing God has ever done. And that most amazing thing God has ever done. Listen to me. That most amazing thing that God has ever done meets your greatest need. That's the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you? So this morning as we close. We're going to sing a song here. And and I invite you not to sing. I invite you to pray. And I, I invite you to pray and thank God that. You were lowered through a roof and he proclaimed to you your sins are forgiven and he calls you son or daughter. You might just need to pray and sit and soak that in and worship him with all you've got. Or maybe you have not ever heard these words from Christ. My daughter, your sins are forgiven because you've never been carried into his presence. Well, I, I want to say, as inadequate as it was done this morning, you have been ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ this morning. You've been in his presence. I don't know how you got lowered into here. Maybe somebody invited you this morning. Maybe you just felt a prompting. You don't know why you're here, but you were lowered through a roof. You have met with Jesus Christ who died for you and wants to say to you this morning, my daughter, my son, your sins are forgiven. Would you hear those words and receive them and take up your mat and sin no more and go?
Maybe you need to not sing while we sing, and you need to ask the Lord to forgive you for your sins and usher you into the kingdom of God. Either way, let's worship in these closing moments with this song, and let me pray for us, and then we'll continue. Oh, Father, you have given us a gift in this passage this morning. Every passage is a gift, but this gift is fresh and new this morning, and it was divinely appointed that we hear this today. Father, it takes a church to live in a fallen world. You've given us a church. We know we live in a fallen world. Would you use us to lower people to the feet of Jesus so that they can be healed of their sins? Father, we're going to carry people to Camp 220 tomorrow. Tomorrow, even even tonight, would you prepare these paralytics that are going? That they need forgiveness for their sins. And would you grant it through their faith and the faith of others that would carry them to Christ? Father, protect us from the arrogance of the scribes. Help us to live humbly and authentically before you and before man. And if any one of us, pastors, elders, deacons, teachers, church members, husbands, wives, if any one of us needs to be carried by others to the feet of Jesus, would you make it to where we delight in being carried? And we don't resist that and don't allow people to take us to Christ. Be honored in these closing moments. Help us to worship all the way through the finish line. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.